Amen. You can be seated if you're not. Um, and uh, man, it's so good to have people in the room. Not that I didn't like uh, the people that have been here over the last couple of weeks uh, helping us out. Those people uh, are amazing. And it would be totally appropriate for those of you that are in the room today to show them your appreciation. Yeah, because they have worked hard so that even though you couldn't be in the room, you could be online. And so I know those of you that are watching online are also clapping because you're grateful for those people as well. And so um, we are continuing on through the Trust the Story. And so we started this series actually the first day that we were closed. So if you have not watched online at all and have not been a part of any of these services, you're coming in on part 13. So we have CDs and DVDs available, and uh, we could make those available to you. You also can go online to find the, the podcast. You can find the, the things that are there. There are um, handouts that are available. There's another map that I've made available to you this week that's on there. And so just want you to be aware of those resources. If you have trouble finding them, let me know. Um, and the point of this series has been understanding the context of the Bible, understanding the culture of the Bible. And we've been using the book by Frank Viola as kind of a supplemental textbook to the Bible. So we're reading things from the Bible, reading things from the book, understanding the culture, understanding the context. And this last week, we read pages 93 to 101, which covers basically Acts chapter 15, the end of it, through Acts chapter 17, the end of that. Um, and then we, we read those pages, we read the corresponding scriptures, and this week we're going to read pages 101 to 103 and the book of 1 Thessalonians. Because if you didn't know, uh, the letters that are scattered throughout our, old, our, our New Testament were actually written by uh, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle James, Jude, um, John, and they were written at different points during the history. So we're trying to put things in context. We're trying to put things in the historical way to help us understand them more. We've also been looking at the Jewishness of the Bible. Because if you're like me, when you were brought up in church, you were taught that when the Jews... Uh, when Jesus died, rose again, Jews, Christians all became the church and lived exactly the same. Not quite accurate, okay? What they agreed upon, we talked about this last week, remember, in the Jerusalem Council, or two weeks ago. They agreed no one is justified by the works of the law. No one is justified by that. They're justified by faith in Jesus, but Jews kept being Jews. You'll see until the temple is destroyed, Paul, Peter, they keep going to the temple for the daily prayer. They keep going for the sacrifices. They keep being Jewish, but they understand that Jew and Gentile together have been made one household as Abraham's children. And so un why is that important to understand? Well, you, you read your Old Testament. Okay, you read from Genesis all the way to Malachi. Then you open to the next book of the Bible and you get to Matthew. And all of a sudden in Matthew, there's this word synagogue. Where'd that come from? I mean, what's a synagogue? We, we read about Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots and Herodians and we're like, who are these people? Generally, when an author is writing a book, if they introduce a new term to you, they define it. That doesn't happen in the Bible. These terms aren't defined for us. So what, here's what we do. Synagogue. Oh, that must mean church. And so we take our Western idea of church 
And we mean that's what synagogue was. Nothing like it at all. Yeah, it was a gathering, but it didn't look anything like what we do when we gather. And so if we don't understand the Jewish context of the scripture, we're going to maybe misapply some of the truths that we're being taught. When Jesus and when Paul and when some of these rabbis teach us things in the scripture, they just assume the people they're writing to understand. I'm stringing together. It's called string of pearls. And we'll talk about this in the Sermon on the Mount later. But they string together passages from the Old Testament, knowing that their audience is going to know that. Because when the Jews come back from Babylon, they become people of the word. Their goal, the whole point of synagogue, is to study the Torah, study the prophets, study the writings. We want to know what God said, and we don't want to fall away from it again. So every year, they meet together, and they read through the entire Torah. Every three years, they read through the prophets and the writings. They read it. They wrestle with it. They discuss it. The rabbi teaches on it. And that is really what this series is all about. It's so that you and I become those same people of the word. So we pay attention to the things that we're reading and not just check off our Bible reading and not just say, oh, I think that means this because this is what our culture says. Eh, making sure that we understand. And I don't want to just tell you what the Bible says. I want you to learn how to study the Bible for yourself so that you too can begin to apply some of those contexts. So that's kind of where we've been. Part 13, we've called, you see what you look for. You see what you look for. We're picking up in Acts chapter 15, right after the Jerusalem Council. Paul and Barnabas now are going on their second missionary journey. And we briefly alluded to this a few weeks ago. The Bible says there was sharp disagreement among them. I believe there was sharp disagreement because John Mark left them on their first missionary journey. And I think John Mark left them because he wasn't comfortable with Paul's message. Paul was preaching this gospel to the Gentiles, which really offended a lot of the Jews. They didn't think that was fair. But the Jerusalem Council, now that they say, yep, this is what we're going to do. Paul's message is right. We're going to preach it. So Barnabas is like, hey, cousin Mark was his cousin, by the way. And he's like, I want to bring him along because, you know, it's all settled now. But Paul is like, no, he's not, on, he's not all in. So they, there's a sharp dispute. And I wish we could say in the original Greek, that doesn't mean sharp dispute. It does. It means sharp dispute. And so they separated ways. And we're always of this frame of mind that in the church, we all agree and we always get along and we always have unity. Apparently not. But one thing I want you to notice, and we're not going to read that section. I want you to look through the scripture and find me all the times that Paul badmouths Barnabas. Or that Barnabas badmouths Paul, or that either one of them badmouthed John Mark. So they separate, but they don't slander. And that's a very important concept for us, because in our, our church world today, when we separate from other believers, sometimes we think we have the right to tell everyone else why we separated, because that person was wrong. I don't know. The whole point, even when we separate, ought to be restoration. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, right here, Paul is writing from a prison cell, about to give his life. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with you. He is helpful to me in ministry. Now you might be like, well, pff, he's only bringing him because he's helpful. No, as a Jew, 
if you're helpful to me in ministry, that's a sign of full favor, full approval. So there's been a full restoration that's taken place here. So even if you separate from someone, the goal ought to still be restoration. Uh, that's just the biblical concept as we see it. So here's a map. This is online. Uh, this is available for you to download, to look at. Uh, we're not going to take a lot of time with it because um, I don't want to run out of time and I want to get all the way to Acts 17. And that's really what I want to talk about today. But this shows you where Paul went for the two and a half years. Um, he goes through places that we're going to read about here in a moment, spend some time in each of those places. And so that map is available to you. If you can't find it, just send me an email and I'll I'll send it to you by email. But Acts chapter 16, uh, we are not going to go through all of these chapters. By the way, uh, I want us to look at Acts chapter 17, what Paul says to the church in Athens or the people of Athens. That's where we're going to focus. But I do want to highlight a couple things that are really profound from these chapters. And the first one is right here in Acts chapter 16, 1 through 5. First stop, Derby, then to Lystra. They find this disciple named Timothy whose mother was Jewish and a believer. Interesting. Jewish and a believer. But whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of Timothy. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Huh? I mean, remember Titus? People were like, you need to circumcise Titus. And Paul's like, no, we're not going to circumcise Titus. Remember what he said to the Galatians? Don't you dare get circumcised, because then you ruin the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's carrying the actual letter that is the Jerusalem council saying, Gentiles, don't be circumcised. What is going on? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I'm going to tell you what's going on. When Titus, who was a Gentile, got saved... For him to be circumcised would have been a theological problem because he would only be getting circumcised to show an outward sign of something. That is not okay. Timothy is a Jew. The Jews believe that because Timothy, his mother was Jewish, Timothy is a Jew. But for whatever reason, his father, the local synagogue, we don't know. For whatever reason, somebody wouldn't allow him to be circumcised as a young boy. So Paul, in order to take Timothy on this journey with him, in order for Timothy to have full access to be able to teach the other Jews in synagogue, to be able to walk into the temple and act out the Jewish faith, the only way he could do that is if he were circumcised. So that's not a theological problem. That's a missional problem. So he does not circumcise Timothy because he's afraid. Paul is not afraid of what anybody thinks. <laughs> it's like this guy just says it. So don't misinterpret this. Paul is saying in order for Timothy not to become a stumbling block, not to not give me access to where I need to go, we're going to circumcise him. Then Paul starts to travel, starts to go back to these places where he preached before. And look at this phrase right here in this passage. But having been kept by the Holy Spirit, from preaching the word in Asia. I don't know what that means. Do you know what that means? The Holy Spirit kept them. It doesn't say Rome kept them. It doesn't say the other Jews kept them. It says the Holy Spirit kept them from doing it. And then he goes over somewhere else and the Spirit of Jesus, same Spirit, by the way, just a different phraseology, kept them from going to that place. So it's like, what is going on here? 
Like, why isn't, you know, sometimes we get into these routines and ruts. Hey, this is the way we did it last time. Uh, this is, you know, what, what uh, we're, we're going to do now. And we don't listen to the Holy Spirit saying, no, I really don't want you to go that way. Let's do it this way this time. Churches in America, we're notorious for this. We get in our habits and routines, what we like, what we don't like, and uh, we're just going to keep doing it that way. And the Holy Spirit might be saying, no, I want you to go this direction now. I want you to try something totally different in this culture you live in. By the way, how many of you believe American culture has changed since 1900? Okay, a lot of hands in the room. Why hasn't church culture changed? Don't you dare tell me because it's the scripture doesn't change. Right, our theology shouldn't change. But our practiceology should probably match our culture around us. If I was a missionary going into a foreign country, I would not go into a foreign country and try to do church the way we do church in America. I would do it a way that that culture needs. And yet, our culture is forever changing, and we don't adapt. Ooh, that was good. Okay, so then Paul decides after this vision, he concludes, God must want us to go to Macedonia. You know, some of us, when we're looking for the will of God, we, we're like, oh, I, got, I need to know God's will. I need to know God's will in this. And we get so paralyzed because we assume God has one will, one decision, one thing that needs to be made in this moment. And if you make the wrong decision, you are, are just, he's going to be very angry. Should I take that job or this job? Should I take that promotion or not take that promotion? Should I move to this city or not move to this city? And I'm not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't help and guide our decisions, but sometimes we make it about this. It, God has to give me the exact thing, even for vision for the church. It, well, if we don't all agree, then we're, we're not going to do it. Well, when has a church, even in the early church, ever all agreed? We just say, at some point, we conclude this is what the Spirit's saying. And we keep our hearts open. If we start going a direction and the Holy Spirit says, no, we shift. And then if the Holy Spirit says, no, we shift again. And the will of God is not so much about trying to find this exact step I need to take as much as it is just following the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about things in the Scripture that say, love your neighbor. Uh, I don't, well, I should pray about whether or not to love my neighbor. Uh, no, don't pray. It's done. Uh, I'm, I should pray about whether I should commit sexual immorality with someone who's not my spouse. Uh, don't, don't need to pray there either. Because those are handled for us pretty clearly, at least in the Jerusalem Council. I mean, if we're free from Torah, okay, but the Jerusalem Council handles those things pretty well for us Gentiles. So, we want to make sure that this idea of the Spirit-led life is something we do regularly. I love Bill Johnson. We just heard this again yesterday. He talks about abiding in Christ. We think of abiding in Christ as this um, theological concept, but it's also a very practical concept. And he talks about this man who has a shower on the second floor, but the hot water takes so long to get up there that at night he leaves it on ever so slightly to trickle. So that in the morning, the hot water is right there, ready to go. And you and I need to live our lives that exact same way. We need to learn to live in the continuous presence of Jesus, abiding in Him all the time. So that when a crisis comes up, we're ready to go. 
When a crisis comes up, I don't have to fast and pray for four days to try to figure it out because I need a decision right now. Or when somebody pushes my buttons at work, I don't need to get in my prayer closet because I might bite their head off. No, there's, there's a continual flow of the Spirit that needs to happen in our lives so that the gifts operate regularly. So that Pastor Mark doesn't have to give us two minutes to try to get the gifts to go. The gifts are going. They've been going all week long. In fact, he barely gets to the mic whenever we get to stop social distancing. And people are all, I'm ready to share a word. I'm ready to give a gift of healing. I'm ready because these things have been flowing in my, week, my life all week long. But for most of us, that's not our life. For most of us, we come to church to get filled up instead of to spill out. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be spilling out. I wish I had time to go through the church at Philippi. I don't have time. There's so much good in there. Like the time Paul doesn't cast a demon out of a girl until he gets annoyed with her. <laughs> There's something there that I don't... I mean, as Americans... We feel like we need to meddle in everybody all the time. You know, that person over there, I need to meddle in their life and fix them. I need to fix that problem. I need to cast out that demon. I need to pray for that sick person. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for everybody, but we really ought to be spirit-led. If you're not praying for anybody, you're probably not being spirit-led. But if you're just praying for everybody, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say it's wrong. I just, I would rather you pray for everybody than nobody. But we have this mindset that if people aren't praying for everybody, they're wrong. And that's not okay. Because right here we see Paul, and I wish, Paul is exasperated. I mean, it says he gets annoyed. <laughs> well, it, he's irked, greatly irritated, and disturbed. That sounds like annoyed. Uh, and he casts his demon out of her, but that gets him thrown in prison. And he gets thrown into prison, and they're in stocks. Okay, stocks, their arms are pulled, their legs are pulled, they're being stretched, painful, and they're worshiping God. And an earthquake happens, and none of them run, and the Philippian jailer and his entire family get saved. That is powerful. And then when he comes out of prison, he's like, hey, 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 you're not running me out of town, I'm a Roman citizen. Interestingly, Paul didn't claim his Roman citizenship to keep from being beaten and thrown into prison to begin with. But he claims it here. Why? Well, because if he gets thrown out of town, it brings a reproach to the gospel. Because now everyone thinks he's a criminal and he's been run out of town. Paul wants to say, no, I want you to lead me out of town. Because I want people to know there's not a reproach on the gospel that I preach. So is there a time to claim our rights and privileges as citizens of a land? Absolutely. Not for selfish gain, but for the gospel of the kingdom. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's what we see Paul doing. In fact, Paul does it another time that we're going to look at because he wants to get to Rome. So maybe once in a while he did it to save a beating. I mean, I wouldn't blame him. He was a human too. I wouldn't want to be beat all the time. Then he goes to Thessalonica. Bad things happen there. He goes to Berea. I preached on that back in September of 2019. I did list the podcast um, on Slack. So if you want to go back and refresh, that's great. But now we are in Athens. Whew. So we're in Athens, Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34 is what we're going to look at. We're going to kind of walk through this. And remember, this is called, you see what you look for. You see what you look for. Henry David Thoreau had, has given us this quote. It's not what you look at that matters. It's what you see. 
See, every single one of us have this thing called confirmation bias. You may have heard that a lot in our, our day right now because it's something that's being talked about a lot. Meaning, we look at the same situation, but we do not see the same thing. Because of our different upbringings, because of our different nationalities, ethnicities, because of our different gender, men, how many of you know, men and women look at the same thing, they do not see the same thing. Okay, there's confirmation bias. So we process information and we as Americans tend to think that our confirmation bias is the right one. All of us. So we really don't listen to each other. We really don't try to look at it from someone else's perspective. We just begin to say, no, 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 you need to see it my way. No, no, you need to see it my way. I don't know if any of us are totally right. And if we don't all start sitting at the table together and having conversations, we ain't going to fix anything. That's a great place to say amen. But that same thing will happen when we read the scriptures. We, or when we present the gospel to someone, we have to be aware of confirmation bias. The Greek words that we have in our scripture are not like our English words. Um, Mark Batterson often refers to them, Greek words are like a kaleidoscope. Remember a kaleidoscope? You stuck it up to your eye and you turn it and it's like, oh, pretty pictures. Oh, everything changes. Um, these Greek words, when you turn them, when you look at them, they, there's so much meaning in each word that you could read the Bible every day of your life for 75 years and never reach the end of what it's saying to you. Like, that's how profound these words and this language is. So, the Apostle Paul comes to Athens. He's waiting, okay? He's waiting for Silas, waiting for Timothy. They're not there yet. And look at this. He is greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Greatly distressed. Uh, he's agitated. He's like, oh, this idolatry. Some of us as believers would walk into a place like that and, and we would need to start casting out demons and we'd need to call a 40-day prayer meeting and we need to, we can't preach the word here because we gotta. And he's greatly distressed, but look at what he does. <laughs> he just starts reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. I'm not saying he didn't pray. I'm not saying he didn't fast. I would guess he prayed. I would guess he kept in step with the Spirit because that's what he does everywhere else. But he goes in and he reasons with the Jews, people born Jewish by birth, people who are proselytes who've come into the Jewish faith, and then people who just believe in God but aren't Jewish. So they haven't been circumcised. They don't follow the law. There's no Christians yet. How do we know? Uh, because they're not listed. <laughs> so they're Jews and God-fearing Greeks. And he begins to reason with them the way he does. But also, in the marketplace, because Athens is a unique city. Athens, they love to debate. They love to, to you know, hash out ideas. and They love new philosophies and new religions. And they're all about, you know, I want a little bit of everything. That's the, this is the center of Hellenism right here in Athens. And so, in the marketplace, he comes across this group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and he begins to debate with them. They're saying, what is this babbler trying to say? I hope when you leave the sermon today, you're not like, what was that babbler trying to say? I really hope that that's not what happens. But some of them are like, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. So, they said, because Paul was preaching the good news He's preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Don't forget, what we should preach is good news about Jesus and the resurrection. We're going to talk about that. 
Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. So like the place where all of the main leaders and teachers and people gather to discuss these new ideas. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time, okay, this is a poor translation, doing nothing but talking about listening to the latest ideas, okay? It's not that they didn't do anything else, but this was a huge part of their life. They would, they would leave work if there was a traveling teacher that was coming to present a new idea, okay? This was very important to them, but it's not that they didn't do anything else than do this, but it was just a huge deal for them, okay? So let's look at Paul's sermon. He starts it right here. They're like, here, preach to us about this God. So he stands up. He says this, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. That word religious is an interesting word because you could take that positively or you can take it negatively. And some translations will translate it religious. Some will translate it superstitious. So the translators who think Paul is being negative here think to use the word superstitious, because that's what it implies. The people who think Paul is being positive use the word religious. I think he's being positive. And the rest of the context is why I think that. So he says, you're being very religious. Remember how he feels right now? Greatly distressed by all the idolatry. And notice he doesn't stand up and say, people of Athens, idolatry is a sin. People of Athens, turn or burn. He doesn't do that, does he? I mean, he could have done that. You would think that was an appropriate way to preach the gospel, at least in America. But Paul says, people of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious. For I walked around and I looked carefully <laughs> at your objects of worship. <laughs> I, I just picture some, some you know, spirit-filled believers thinking, Oh, I can't believe he went into the temple of that God. He needs to be cleansed. Get the oil. Get the... Guys, we have the Spirit of God living in us. Now, if you're playing with a Ouija board because you just want to have fun and see, conjure up spirits, but let me tell you something. Walking into a false temple, there better be something in you greater than what's in that temple. And so Paul apparently doesn't have a hard time just flittering about the city and looking at what they've got there. So then he says, by the way, Paul stuttered under Gamaliel, which means he would have studied Greek philosophy, Greek heritage. So this isn't the first time he's been exposed to this stuff. But then he says, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. You are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Again, I hate that word because when, if I would call you ignorant, you would get offended. Because that's how we take the word ignorant. Ignorant just means you don't know, okay? It's not, it shouldn't be offensive. When someone says you're being ignorant, it means you're just, you're, you're not listening. You're not gaining understanding. There's things out there you're, you're not aware of. Um, it shouldn't be a derogatory term. It is for us. So he's not being mean to them. He's not saying you're stupid, you're ignorant, you're fools. He's saying you don't know about this God, this unknown God. You, you yourself said it, but this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. This is brilliant. I'm going to tell you about this unknown God that you yourselves, like he, it's almost like he's praising them. I, I don't know what to do with this. He, he doesn't condemn their idolatry, but he starts talking about this. So he says, this God 
is the one who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. When Paul was in Lystra and Derby in Acts chapter 14, this is exactly what he taught them. He started, he does this often with the Gentiles, people that don't have an understanding of Scripture. He'll take them all the way back to the God of creation, the Lord of heaven and earth. And what he's telling them is, guys, you think that this God, this God that created everything somehow dwells in something you made with your hands? He's bigger than that. This God, he that you bring sacrifices to because, you know, you're trying to appease him, don't think that he actually even needs anything from you. He is so powerful. He is so great. He is the source of all of our life. See what he's doing? He's building up. He's still being respectful. He's still being good to them. Then, this is shocking. From one man, he made all the nations so they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. I mean, they would understand this. There was a Greek empire, then it got overthrown. There was a Roman empire. They know this. They know history. And now they're like, there's a God that's in control of all of this? Wow, that's interesting. God did this. Here we go. Everyone with me? Why did God do all this? Here it is. So that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Do not forget every person on this planet right now. God's plan and purpose for their life is that somehow they would seek him, perhaps reach out for him, and find him. If you don't believe that, you believe that Paul is using flattery and he's lying right here. I don't believe that. I believe that's what's in Paul's heart that this is what God has been doing all along and is still doing today. Though he is not far from any one of us. You know, sometimes, I want to be careful how I say this. Please don't misunderstand. If you even have a remote question, please call me. When we talk about sin and God can't abide in sin, we, we, we make it as if here's a sinner and God is like way over here because God can't be near that sinner. He is not far from any one of us. He never has been. That doesn't mean that he can dwell with sin. He can't. But that doesn't mean he's far from people. That person is so far from God. Ain't nobody far from God because God is not far from any one of us. And he hopes that we'll reach out to him. And then, look at this. For in him, we live and move and have our being. Do you ever remember singing that song, those of you who grew up in good church, good Pentecostal churches? In him we live and move and have our being. We're singing about a Christian philosopher. Yeah, look at your footnote. This is a Cretan philosopher who wrote these words. And Paul is using it to say, hey, look, God's not far from you. How do I know that? I see his fingerprint on you. 
I see his grace in your life. The only way you could write a good poem, the only way you could sing a good song, whether God is in the song or not, if you ever listen to music and you're like, wow, that person has such a gift, that is the grace of God on their life, whether they're a believer or not. Because all good gifts come from God. And we can go up to them and we say, man, you have such a great God-given gift. That is so awesome. How did you learn? And we can engage them, not by saying, oh, look at your ugly sin. Oh, look at that thing in your life that's not good. We can say, God is after you. Yes, we have to get to sin. Yes, we have to get to repentance. We just don't have to start there. We can actually lead people in a journey and actually make them feel valued and loved and accepted even before they become a believer. Now, the goal is to get everyone to be a believer because we don't want to just treat people nice and make great relationships with people because then they still end up in hell. Salvation is still the end game. But have you heard Paul even talk about sin yet? No, and I'm going to think you never do. I know that's terrible. Okay, and then he goes on. As even some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. That's a Sicilian. Sicilian. I think of, I can't think of anything but the princess bride. I'm a Sicilian. <laughs> and so he's using these philosophers. And here's, if I preached a sermon today and I kept quoting from like hip hop artists, what would you all do? I'm guessing some of you wouldn't like it. Do you know what those hip-hop artists stand for? Do you know what they have on their Facebook page? Do you know? You know, they still have the thumbprint of God on their life. And if I can find anything good, oh, there's nothing good in people. You're right. But God is at work in their lives, so there's got to be something good there somewhere. And I point to God in them, and then I point to who God is. And that's what we do. We've, but if we're going to look for sin, we're going to find sin. If we're going to look for the image of God, we're going to find the image of God. Whew. And we've got to be able to engage our society with the grace of God. But we're convinced we need to start with the, step, the depravity of man. We're convinced of that. We're convinced that we've got to walk up to every person and say, you're a sinner, you need a savior. You've sinned, you've sinned, you've sinned. And we've got to start there. Do you ever need to start there? Maybe. Be led by the Spirit. Do you always have to start there? Well, Paul didn't. He didn't in Lystra and Derby either. And so we have to be careful. When, when we walk around and we're always, we're, we're focused on all of the evil forces at work. I'm, I'm hearing it everywhere right now. Oh, there's so many evil forces at work in our nation. There's so many evil forces at work here. There's so many evil forces at work in that person's life. And I'm not going to disagree it. But let me remind you that Jesus disarmed every principality and every power and he humiliated them when he died on the cross by laying down his life then he's resurrected again so I don't care what evil's at work in their life look for the thumbprint of God look for where God is at work in our nation start breathing on that but here's the problem there's going to be a lot of bad stuff too and what we want to do is we want to separate everybody into camps 
Can't work with that group because that group is mostly bad. Can't work with this group because this group is, you know, too bad. Or they at least have one doctrine that I can't agree with or philosophy. And we do this in the church world too. Well, that person isn't bearing enough fruit, so I can't be with them. And that, that one fruit is not good. I wish I could just get out what's in my heart. Um, but again, remember, add this to what you already know. Don't think, oh, Pastor Tom's teaching heresy. No, he's not. He's teaching the gospel that Paul's preaching. And this is what we need to do. We can work for the peace and prosperity of our city because God is at work here. In fact, our city leaders are servants of God. That's what the book says. So we ought to serve them. And it doesn't matter if they're doing church work or not church work. Now, do we work with them to commit sin? No. I mean, if they're going to have slot machines on Main Street, do we? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Isn't that terrible? I just don't know. I hate to say no. I don't know. Because those people pulling those slot machines need Jesus and somehow... Maybe we could talk them in, oh, I don't know. How did I even get there? Stick to your notes. <laughs> the point is engage people with grace because then look what Paul does. Since we are God's offspring, since we are God's offspring, that's what you said. This is what you said. This is who you've said we, he is. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked that ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. And you're like, oh, there it is. Repent of your sins. But most of your translations will not say repent of your sins. Now, do people need to repent of their sins? Yes. But what Paul is saying is repent of your mindset of who God is. That's what he's saying. This is not the God of the universe. Repent and come to this God of the universe because he set a day where he will judge the world with justice or righteousness by the man he has appointed. Okay, he's going to judge them by righteousness, not because of sin, by righteousness. And the, you have to live up to the standard of righteousness to be judged proper. Now, none of us can. No matter what standard you try to use for righteousness, you will never measure up. But thanks be to God, Jesus died in your place and he is your righteousness. So if you turn to Jesus and you repent, you turn away from what you believed, how you lived, and you turn to him, you will be saved. That's the gospel Paul preaches. Again, not saying we shouldn't preach the people who have to repent of sins, but saying we can change how we're saying this so that people hear it different. Because if I walk up to you and tell you you have sin in your life, guess what's going to go up? Yeah, even you, good Christian person. Yeah, you're going to get defensive. How, who are you to tell you I have sin in my life? But if I walk up to you and try to find a way to figure out what's going on in your life and why that thing is showing up, because I believe you're a believer. How do I believe that? Well, because you've confessed Jesus as Lord. You have, you, you have surrendered your life to him. You've been baptized. And because in the book of John, right here, Jesus says, John chapter 15, I'm the vine. My father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch that bears how much fruit? No fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit. He prunes so it will even be more fruitful. So 
because someone's being unfruitful in an area of their life doesn't make them not a believer. It means that they need me to come up and help figure out what's going on. But if I walk up and say, you know, that thing is a sin. You need to get it out of your life. Yeah, but the way you're talking about, Pastor Tom, that takes longer. I mean, that takes relationship. That takes time and effort and energy and love. But this is what we're called to in the body of Christ, to spur one another on, to love and good deeds, to help one another. Think about how Jesus engaged people. Zacchaeus, get down here. we got to talk about this tax collector thing. Oh, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to come to your house for a meal. When's the last time a rabbi came to Zacchaeus' house to have a meal? Never. And at the end of the meal, he stands up and he repents. If I have taken anything, I'm paying it back. <laughs> and Jesus says, salvation has come to this household. Wouldn't you not want to know what they talked about over dinner? I'm guessing it's not sin. But Jesus at the table led him to repentance. The goal is still for people to have that Zacchaeus moment where they say, I'm turning from my life of sin. That's the goal. But I don't know that we have to get there the way we've always gotten there. I don't know that we have to look at people as totally far from God, totally something I can't participate in, totally something I can't give myself to because of that thing or this thing. I think we can do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul says this, Though I am free, I belong to no one. I have made myself a slave to everyone. <laughs> that is a great sermon for the American mentality of we have our rights. I have made myself a slave to everyone. You can't make me do anything, Paul says, but I'm choosing to do it. I'm choosing to do what's in your best interest because... I want to reach you. So to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though myself am I'm not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so to, as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak, to the, win the weak. I've become all things to all people, so that all possible means I might have saved some. Now, for those of you that are like, well, to win those people in the, the casinos, I'm just going to go in the casinos. Okay, great, but you're not going in there so you can spend it on your pleasure. You're not going in there to win. You're not going in there to, to drink and get drunk. You're not going in there to satisfy or gratify your flesh. You're going in there missionally. And if you're going in there missionally, you may participate in some activity that the Bible doesn't say black and white sin. Oh, well, in order to reach this, real, this girl I like, Pastor, I just, you know, I, I felt like I had to have just sex with her once because I just had to, you know, reach her. It's not what we're saying. So you can take some of the stuff I'm saying and you can twist it and you can make it however you want or you can just try to develop the good eye that I'm talking about. One last scripture and then we're going to close because I want you to hear it from the words of Jesus. Jesus uses this scripture and we're going to come back to it when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's in August. But Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. 
If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And I don't have time to pick it all apart, but that word healthy implies, and you might have a footnote in your study Bible, it implies to be generous. Now, Jesus has just said, don't store up your treasure on earth, okay, but store up your treasure in heaven. Then he says this that we've just read. Then he says you can't serve both two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. Then he says don't worry about your life, what you're going to wear or eat or drink. The whole chapter is about provision. It's about generosity. And in the middle of it, Jesus uses a very rabbinic teaching to have a good eye, a healthy eye, a generous eye. So a bad eye, a bad eye says, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. So I'm going to keep to myself. A bad eye is stingy. And this isn't just materially. This is spiritually. This is emotionally. This is whatever you want it to be. Because when you look at the world, you're like, well, if I do that for that person, there won't be enough for me. If I preach that kind of message or if I, you know, help that person, you know, it's going to affect me badly. And I, I don't trust that God's going to take care of me. I'm not trusting the story. We would never say it. But we live in this poverty lack mentality. And everywhere we look, all we see is sin and brokenness. Guess what? I see sin and brokenness too. I do. It's everywhere. But I want to start having a good eye. Because a good eye is convinced that God's abiding presence is on the earth today. A good eye is convinced that every human being is made in the image of God, even our enemies. A good eye says that I can trust God to be at work in even the most horrendous sinner that somewhere there is something I could find somewhere God has worked in that person's life and there's a, a grace that's been given to him there's a gift that's been given to him there's something good that I can say hey look this is God in your life if you can't find anything else it's probably a mom or a grandma and that mom or grandma oh yeah she's so good to me yeah that was a grace of God in your life because God wanted you to know how much he loves you there's always a starting point. But if we're not going to have that good eye, if we're not going to have this generous eye towards others, it's going to be hard to see. So you are going to look around this week, and the question is, what are you going to see? Well, you're going to see what you look for. And you're either going to look for sinful people, and you're going to look for the brokenness of our world and all of the things that are wrong with our society, or you're going to look for where God is at work. And you're going to join him. And you're not going to change the message. The message is still the same. You come to the cross. You repent. You turn away. You come after Jesus. You lay your life down. It's all the same. But how you get someone to the cross doesn't have to be the way we've spoken the truth in love in our society. we got to tell people like it is because they're going to go to hell. And if they don't hear it, it's not love. Well, neither is that. Let me just say it. Neither is that. And if we're not willing to get down in the dirt with them, then don't preach to them either. Because all we're doing is turning them off from the gospel. That's a challenging message, but it's a good one. And every one of us in this room and every person watching online, every one of us is guilty of this in some way, in some area. I guarantee you, we all have some level of confirmation bias that the Holy Spirit needs to work in. That's a good thing. 
Now we're going to ask him to change our hearts, change our minds, and change our eyes. Because remember what Jesus said? If you get your eye good, your whole body is full of light. Everything gets good when you start doing that. And so let's pray. Father, thank you that you are at work in our world. God, thank you that you, even when we were your enemies, demonstrated your love for us by sending Jesus to this earth to, to take our punishment and to be our righteousness. Father, help us to learn how to preach the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. God, help us to know how to bring people to the cross. Help us to learn to see the image of God in even our enemies. God, in even the worst sinners in our city. God, that when we look at them, we're not disgusted by them, but we are looking for the image of God in their lives. We are looking for the grace that you've given them. God, we know that you want to clean them up. We know that you want them to repent of their sin. But God, we want to bring them to you for that. We don't want to try to do it on our own. God, we don't want to try to get them clean before we bring them to the cross. We want them to come to the cross because you are the one that sets us free. You are the one that delivers us and restores us. You are the only one that can do that. And so, God, we recognize that our eyes aren't totally healthy today. We recognize that we don't have good eyes, that there are ways that we are stingy. There are ways that we withhold. God, there are ways because of fear or because of insecurity or because that we're not going to have enough for our family or because we're, we're going to have to have our rights taken away. God, we're looking at things through bad eyes and we want you, Holy Spirit, to come and put that salve, that same salve that you put on the eyes of the Laodicean church so they could see clearly put it on our eyes today so that we have good eyes so that we have healthy eyes God so that we can bring people into the kingdom so people can find hope people can find freedom people can find salvation in the name of Jesus Christ and so father I pray that you would help take every word I've spoken God maybe if I could have said it better Holy Spirit re untwist it and make it better in the hearers in their ears today. Help us all to understand this message and begin to apply it to our lives today. God, help us to see the fruit of this message even in this week ahead, even in the weeks ahead. God, that we're going to be seeing people coming into the kingdom because of the fruit of your word. And so, God, we bless it today. We bless your word, God, to accomplish what you've called it to accomplish. And now over your body today, I pray a blessing. God, whether they're watching online, whether they're here in this room, I pray that you would bless them and that you would keep them. I pray that you would cause your face to shine on them, lift up your countenance upon them, give them peace. I pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for joining us online. We're so glad that you were a part of the service today. And uh, we hope to see you soon in person uh, or at least back next week. Don't forget House of Prayer tonight at 5 o'clock. We'll be on Zoom. Hope you can be there. God bless.